in an ideal setting, I would love to see President Biden sort of be statesmanlike and saying we're going to restart this. I would like to see Huawei's operating system as a competitor to Android and Apple's iOS system. I think China has a, a very good story and it should live on its story and just continue to do well. Success is the greatest uh, tractor. Gentlemen, it's great to have you back on China Chat, and this time to talk about China's 14th five-year plan. And on this topic, we could probably talk for days on end. So I have prepared three objects as hints to the themes of our discussion. Hmm? Michael, would you like to open the first box? Certainly. Hand it over. I'd Check be it happy out. to. Yeah. That's very interesting. <laughs> Panda, silver coin. And so yeah. I think that's economics. And my question is, where do you foresee China's economy in five years? Well, definitely stronger. China has a very, very developed planning process. Everything is vetted. Their idea comes out from the ministry or the government. They take it all the way down. They first make sure it fits in with the long-range plans, 5 and, and 15 and 50. And then it goes all the way down to the bottom, uh, to the work units. You're a member of a work unit. Certainly, China in, in 2020 had positive growth. GDP, I think around 2.3%. That was largely because of the impact of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Going in, in, into this year and, and future years under the, the 14th five-year plan, um, certainly I think we will see steady growth. Um, the anticipation is um, to start in the area of 6% annual growth in GDP. Yeah, but is, I, isn't it I mostly imagine, at eight? I do think that 6% perhaps is, is a bit of a cautious figure. I think that um, probably that area of 67% um, will be uh, yeah. fairly predictable over the course of, of the five years. I think there are, two, there are two important things going forward. One is the Chinese government in 2020 was much more cautious about both fiscal and monetary stimulus than anywhere else in the world. So I'm not expecting China to face the kind of financial instability and crisis that we're likely to see in the rest of the world. The second thing that's really important in the five-year plan is China's at a point of inflection. Ten years ago, it was clearly an investment-driven system, investment in factories, investment in infrastructure. Uh, now China's infrastructure is built out. I think China has to transform to have indigenous in innovation, and the, there's a lot of emphasis in the 14th five-year plan on building up uh, technological capabilities. Uh, and it, the other thing is it has to spread that innovation around the country. They, they use the term in the government work report, the term vitality. It has to be a vital vitality and dynamism spread around the country. Michael, care to elaborate on innovation-driven development? Sure. We see that the government has indicated support, a growth in research and development funding. Over 7%. Um, of it. This is actually a very, very significant component of the economic side of the five-year plan. Funding for research and development is not specifically focused on any particular area. For example, it's not just for digital technology. But they've specifically put aside funds for chip development. In essence, try to shore up their own internal supply chains. Oh, absolutely. That, that's, a, that's a key component. So in one of the things I notice living in China is how much competition there is in many sectors. In the U.S., we don't see that level of competition. For instance, in e-commerce, you have a lot of companies competing, where in the United States it's been heavily monopolized. 
The other thing is uh, the national security strategy document of the United States emphasizes very much two things. One is stopping China from getting new technology, and the other is investing in future technological development in the United States. I'm very doubtful that the U.S. government is competent to do the latter, but I'm hoping the Chinese government is competent to carry out its own strategy. But the only way to do that is to spread the, spread the funds around and be sure that the technology goes into something that's productive. And now, China is in a great opportunity. Use the new technologies for productivity. Well, a lot of the technology increases the efficiency, so its, its factories can become more efficient, and wages go up because of that. The other is China has a lot of hinterland that needs to be developed. And a lot of these new technologies, the 5G, the e-commerce, they help people in de develop in those areas too. Well, I, I maybe, want to get back to, to something maybe. Einar said. Uh -huh. Part of the research and development budget is targeted because the, it, it is very important that China as a nation be self-sufficient in the semiconductor area, artificial intelligence, quantum computing. That doesn't mean all of the research and development money is going to those particular areas. I think we could look at uh, the, the funding that, that, that's going toward R&D as trying to accomplish two mm -hmm. broad objectives. One is, as Einar suggested, uh, to make sure that China is, is self-sufficient, that there are not areas um, where foreign countries can in interfere with the supply chain for various uh, domestic Chinese industries. Uh, the second objective is to provide the education and also the innovation uh, to push the country forward and keep it growing as it has been in recent years. The way it was expressed, you said China is shoring up and self-protectionism. But the fact is, it didn't occur until these last four years when uh, uh, you know, Donald US. Trump came in and said, look, I'm going to cut off your supplies. So China is reacting all right, to containment strategy that's being pushed by another country. We have Apple, 10 billion a year in terms of uh, research and development, and then Huawei with 15 billion. Huawei put 15 billion dollars a year into their research and development, and what did they get in return? You're cheating, you're taking our stuff, we're gonna ban you. This is the, the real consequences. There's a, a basic hypocrisy. We're on top, and we want to stay there. Well, I agree we with say, that. We say a lot of stuff, but we don't actually follow through. China is definitely being pushed into developing its own technology because of U.S. policy, which started in the Obama administration, by the way, and will continue, according to the National Security Strategy document published last week. That would be true whatever the international situation. China is too big to be a follower country in terms of technology or to depend on international trade for its growth. It has to grow internally through its own technology. I don't think you should be doing follow-on technology, especially in China. You should be looking at leapfrogging. China has the ability, which is going to be uh, very much in quantum computing. Why would you concentrate on silicon right now when, in fact, the next generation is going to be in, in a quantum computing state, which is probably going to be uh, very, very different structure and organization. But the question still remains, all right, will the U.S. and Europe let it happen. Because every time China does indigenous innovation, whether it's 5G or a lot of kind of base stuff, all of a sudden, you know, it's a threat. And we, we have to contain it. I don't see that as a problem. The, the world is a very big place. There is a concern that the countries in the West, the United States in particular, will look at that and say, oh, China is starting a technology race. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, I think it would be great 
if the nations of the world would engage in a technology race. There's a very important phrase in the, in the government work report, which is used in China a lot, is China's peaceful rise. It's one of the things that made China able to rise over the last 40 years is it has not been involved in any stupid war, as opposed to the United States that has been involved in stupid wars over most of my lifetime. Endless and, wars. And it, it never stops. And I think it's important to recognize that most of this research goes into peaceful development. So I think continuing the peaceful rise is really, really crucial for China going forward. You're going to see uh, a lot of technology that the United States and other countries want to stop China from getting. I, I don't think that's going to work. Hard to stop the spread of technology. I think further emphasis on more competition in the world is a good thing. I would like to see Huawei's operating system as a competitor to Android and Apple's iOS system. The more competition, the better. So China is pursuing high quality development. I'd like to know what exactly does it entail? High quality development is, the, is really that ability to move past the middle income trap. I think the government should enforce antitrust law in particular. So competition there's no, there's no and, and, the, and the government should not create a system where it allows a few Wall Street banks to dominate the country, which is exactly what we did over the last 30 years. I think that uh, the, the two places that, that um, we will see uh, involvement of China's central government to make the market more competitive are one, uh, making the, these large companies um, more responsive to the market. The other area is in modernizing many of the state-owned enterprises. I just want to add a comment here. The three of us come from very different perspectives and backgrounds. Let's agree on that. But so far, all I've heard is that all three of us agree that the free market does not work unless it's regulated. One of the big things that's been mentioned over the last year is financial opening up to foreign competition. Yeah, I but I do think China should be very, very cautious about that. Um, it's important uh, to, to regulate the financial services system. And essentially what, what, where we need to go is we need to expose the decision of banks or other lenders when they make a loan, we need to expose that more to market forces. One way that this can be addressed is through an expansion of corporate bonds, having a more specialized uh, debt market. I'm going to disagree with both of you in the okay. sense that the next upcoming revolution is the digital yuan. Every yuan that is digital will be traceable. You know exactly where it went, what it, it, when it went for, and who, and timing. So this is going to change everything. You're absolutely right. I information transparency are the regulator's best friends. Also, Algorithms. there are concerns of privacy. So China has probably put in the most effective privacy. They're, in essence, saying they will have the information at the top level, all right, at, at, from the Bank of China. They'll have all the transactional information. But if a, a bank or a company uh, underneath that is trying to gather and use that information, they have to get personal permission from those involved. I think it's a, it'd be very interesting to see how that I is. I think in that's five a great years. idea. So what do you think would be the main challenges for the next five years? Financial well, obviously markets Obviously, pollution one. is going to continue to be a big challenge. You've got to be sure that the transition toward a less carbon intensive system is a just transition that somehow that the working people are not the ones who suffer in that transition. You have to be careful about that. I think the question of will China be able to, to create indigenous technology, 
that's going to be answered in the next 10 years. One, my, one of my, my biggest concerns would be the, the risk associated with corporate debt. Another financial risk that we haven't talked about is that of the real estate market. And it really is tied in to some of these other issues of, of um, stimulus and corporate debt because one of the, the reasons that there are these escalations in prices is that companies are investing in real estate. When they get money, they don't know what to do with it mm. in, in, in terms of new innovative products. Then what do you do to make sure that it's safe? You put it in real estate, yeah. just like everybody else. And that drives up the, the, the prices in those markets. I think China has internal challenges. I think it can deal with most of those. But on a uh, global basis, uh, climate change, uh, that's not something China can do alone. Also, in terms of uh, politics, we are arriving at a crisis point. The question is, does it escalate? You have one side, an existing power that believes, uh, it's very ideological, believes in American exceptionalism, that there's only one way that the whole world should be ruled, economically and politically. And if you don't have that way, you're therefore an enemy. What, what do all of the countries that America hates have in common? They don't adopt our system. Probably to a surprise, I'm going to agree with Einar. Wait a second. <laughs> write, down, write down the time and date. <laughs> I think everybody just needs to calm down. Stop attacking each other all the time. America is looking for another adversary and they're, they're turning to China, but China is not an aggressive expansionist power. So what is the United States doing? It's, it's looking at pieces of China itself and trying to intervene or interfere. Uh, there are actually discussions and, and votes in the U.S. Congress about the status of Hong Kong. Uh, there's constant discussion of, of various other internal areas well, in China, Xinjiang, such as Xinjiang Tibet. and Tibet. Yeah. In a sense, you could say when, when the U.S. doesn't have an expansionist adversary to it work about, against, it creates one. <laughs> I want to go back to your, your press uh, things. I, I've noticed a lot of uh, correspondents, when they come here, they already have in the mind that... I was sympathetic, you know, at the, the, the beginning, this argument, well, in the United States we have press that will look into every dark corner and expose everything. Not so much anymore. But, <laughs> no, it, and actually, <laughs> like. there's tremendous political bias in the press, mm -hmm. so that if I'm on, you know, on this side, I only look at the dark corners on that side, and to my mind, they've lost all credibility once yeah, they've done that. Not. We're all in agreement. Both of you mentioned about the interferences coming from the United States. China keeps saying, stop interfering in our internal affairs. And we also have China-US communique, but obviously it's being ignored. So what's your opinion on improving the electoral system of Hong Kong and the principle of patriots administering Hong Kong? In the end of the day, a place like Hong Kong, it has to reconcile itself to the fact that it is part of China. China has the duty to maintain a civil society. And if that means not having separatists out there actively saying that you should have the right to vote on whether you want to be part of China or not is going to be uh, the way it is. Having those riots, people being killed on the streets, police officers being knifed in the neck, old men being stoned to death, that's not nice. And the first duty of a civil government is to provide law and order. I would argue that although Hong Kong has often been seen as the gateway to China, that since the, the handover, it has simply tried to maintain that status and not really integrate with the economy. Had there been more economic integration from the Hong Kong side, more interest in that, I think that, um, that there would be um, you know, probably 
um, farther along in terms of integration as a society. Let's, no. let's go back to the, uh, the premise here. There is no ambiguity. The NPC is, on all things constitutional, the final word, period. So when there are issues, it is going to be handled there. How about Xinjiang and has anyone of you been there yet? A number of times. How yes. is it? It's been as, uh, as safe as any, any place in China. This idea that some place is reserved only for people of a certain ethnicity doesn't work. China is a highly mobile society and it had to be in order to build the cities that we are in. Everything and all the infrastructure that you've talked about. This was not done by the local guy you know, down the street. Hundreds of thousands of people would have come in to make these bridges, railways, etc. One thing that seems very, very apparent, in five years from now, they want to have a central language so that people can understand each other. Also, it's necessary so that people are mobile. If you only speak Cantonese, guess what? You can go to Guangdong, or you can go to Hong Kong, and nowhere else. You're physically, geographically limited by your language. The same in, in Xinjiang, in Tibet, okay? These are all areas where if you don't do it, you, you lessen your mobility. And that's one of the problems with Hong Kong. I mean, many of these students could go to the uh, mainland, talent. but they don't have the language. So they, they're stuck there. And they're, they're literally being artificially forced by the market because there's so many of them and only so many jobs. So where is that mobility there? So I think China is saying, look, the country that prepares itself for the next economy is going to win the economic uh, situation. And part of that is having a unified sense of being and unified languages and then the skills uh, that can propel you and give you opportunities. I think in terms of you know, U.S. commentary on, on China, one China, issues of Taiwan, Hong Kong, Xinjiang, Tibet, one thing that needs to be pointed out is the, actually the United States has a very, very clear position on separatism, which it achieved in 1865. And that is, the United States is opposed to secession. The United States is opposed to But separatism. it's different when it's a different country. That's correct. You have small hypocrisies, large hypocrisies, but when you start having them be so transparently hypocritical, it starts to undermine. I think that's really what is undermining our soft power abroad uh, in Europe and other places, because they said, well, we just don't trust you because it's one rule for the U.S. and another rule for somebody else. So, gentlemen, let's move on. David, would you like to open the second box? Sure. Oh, it's a heavy one. Check it out. It's a... Uh, yeah, it's uh, a smart speaker. It's yeah. smart speaker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's an intelligent speaker. It's, a it's not one of the Amazon ones, then. It's probably not spying on me. So, question. How do you think the 14th five-year plan will help the Chinese people live a better life? I think it's going to uh, push, push technology. One thing that really impresses me is that you can get 4G, maybe even now 5G, almost anywhere in China, which is not true in most countries. Uh, I think it's going to lead to better control of pollution. I think that will improve people's lives every day. I think it will probably uh, increase wages of workers, and that's a very important thing also. I would like to think about uh, the um, people living outside the major cities. Technology is a big driver. It can bring many of the, the attractions of the city or many of the, the opportunities of the city to different parts of the country.
and a follow-up one uh, for Aina. So what will happen to China's rural areas in another five years? Well, you're going to continue to see uh, larger farms that are more efficient, uh, the use of uh, more drones and robotics in terms of agriculture. Uh, you'll see people moving towards smaller towns, enjoying, a, I think, uh, a better lifestyle, especially in terms of habitation, access to uh, services and things like that. Mm -hmm. One thing we've seen is that health care and education in small cities and rural areas is not up to the standards of the big cities. And I think it's really important to create a highly capable workforce that health care and education standards be raised throughout, and, and that's throughout rural areas. And in terms of the environment and climate, would you call the 14th five-year plan also a decarbonization blueprint? It's certainly moving in that direction. I mean, we should not underestimate the amount of challenge that will be involved in moving toward a carbon-neutral economy. But it's certainly a step in that direction. And the big step is moving away from coal. But you're going to have to find jobs for all those people who are no longer working in coal. And you're going to have to find uh, ways to, for people to heat their homes. It's going to be a very challenging process. And Michael, China aims to ensure its carbon emissions peak by 2030 and then achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. Do you think the 14th five-year plan is practical enough to move toward these goals? Yes, I, I think so. The, the country first you know, recognizes that carbon emissions will continue to increase, although the rate at which they increase will perhaps decrease, and certainly uh, they're, they're, they're slowing uh, the growth of the problem. And then after it reaches a maximum, it, it's going to go down and, um, and s uh, attain uh, carbon neutrality in, in around 2060. So it's a long-term plan. Um, it's something that is going to be subject to further adjustment. It's not, uh, the, all the decisions don't have to be made this year or in this 14th five-year plan. Uh, but I think that, um, that the, 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 current, uh, the current arc uh, of progress is, is correct, and I, I think it's certainly sufficient for where the country wants to go. So, you know, I, I, I agree. Um, right now, what China has done is taking a very pragmatic approach. Uh, it's coming out of this post-pandemic uh, uncertainties globally, challenges locally, uh, where they need a little bit more wiggle room. As always, uh, China has a tendency to, to under-promise and over-perform. So they haven't missed any of their goals. Uh, it's just like the 6% you were talking about. Everyone else says it's 8 to 9%. But they're trying to be modest. Yes. Right? So it doesn't mean that China won't meet those goals. Mm -hmm. And the last box. Aina, would you like to open it? Sure. So make a guess mm -hmm. on the question. Then. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's about culture and sports and, and soft power. Ping pong diplomacy. Where do you think China-U.S. relations are going? And what would you suggest the Biden administration to do? Yeah, I think U.S.-China relations are likely to continue to be a problematic for the next 10 years or so because the United States has a, a belief in a world order system which was created in which it drives and China is a growing power and the biggest thing we need to do is concentrate on seeing the good parts of each other and also keeping the situation calm don't let it get out of control be sure that we maintain as peaceful relations as possible. It's clear that President Biden right now is, is taking a, a little time to think through um, how he wants to approach the China question. Domestically, um, he, he has a, a number of constraints, many of them created by his predecessor, President Trump. 
by uh, alerting, uh, alerting Americans to the, the competition uh, that, that China represented and, and actually um, doing, doing so in a very um, harsh and acrimonious way, um, he changed the tone of, of the domestic discussion. So President Biden, even if he would like to change all of that and put all of that aside, he can't. He's somewhat constrained. And at the same time, he has to protect him, himself against attacks from the other political party. So in an ideal setting, I would, I would love to see you know, President Biden sort of be, be statesmanlike and saying we're going to restart this. And I think that what he will try to do is he will emphasize um, a hard line with China on some technical trade issues, but try to demonstrate a broader multilateralism and, and work in a friendlier way with China in some other contexts. Thank you. Aina, China's State Council and Foreign Minister Wang Yi said differences in systems should not be an excuse for antagonism or confrontation. What do you think? There are many paths to prosperity. It's not just one road. China's had success for 40 years with the system that it's had. And I don't think you can deny that. The U.S. says it has the best system, but we have seen since 1979 uh, the malaise of the middle class um, and you know, not only shrinking, but also their purchasing power, in essence, staying fairly flat. So from that perspective, um, you know, there's got to be a realization, especially uh, outside China, that you know, each country has to find its own way. And it's not the responsibility of one nation to rule all. Thank you. And gentlemen, a quick yes or no question. Would you call the 14th five-year plan a plan to overtake the United States? No. No. China's internal markets and its internal development are the most important thing for China. I'll say no. I, I think China has a, a very good story and it should live on its story and just continue to do well. Success is the greatest uh, attractor and I think that's uh, China's strong suit and that's why I'm saying it's not uh, trying to overtake, it's simply reacting to what they perceive are threats from others. So what does China's 14th five-year plan mean for the rest of the world? It's an example of a dis different system, a path to prosperity that other countries cannot repeat, but they can study and try to find pieces that work for their country. And how is a greener, more innovative, and safer China relevant to and better for other countries? Well, a more innovative China provides benefits for the rest of the world. When you innovate, it creates opportunities for people around the world. They can be the follower countries. That's a good thing. And of course, being greener is better for the rest of the planet. And the 14th five-year plan actually marks China's new journey to build a modern socialistic country. If and when China accomplished this, what would this mean to other countries? There's a school of strategists that believe anything that's good for one country is necessarily bad for other countries. They believe it's a, either a zero-sum or a negative-sum game. I think that's completely wrong. I think a prosperous China would be good for the rest of the world, a very prosperous China, because it provides markets, it provides innovation, it provides competition. It would create a better world. Thank you, gentlemen. And before we end the show, the two deputies we talked to last time have sent us video updates. They oh. couldn't join us today because they're in meetings, but they would like to share their two sessions experience. So let's check. Thank you. Hi guys, I'm very sorry that I cannot join you today for the discussion, even online, for the 14th five-year plan. I'm very impressed by this report. Uh, when talking about the innovation and the creativity, now Chinese government uh, emphasize the basic research.
in this report, they use a Chinese word using tianye to sharpen a sword to encourage all academic researchers to be more concentrated, more patient and persistent in their research. I fully agree with that. And also in the five-year plan, it mentioned we should set up an international Chinese uh, communication platform. I, I think the most important uh, we should first do is to illustrate and to unfold, to let the foreigners to know what it is about, what is a real picture of China. Uh, we should do it from many small details to unfold the picture of the real China. Hello, Mr. David Blair, Mr. Anna Tangen, and Mr. Michael Powers. What most impressed me is that an action plan is elaborated to peak carbon emission by 2030, and a promise is made to achieve carbon neutrality by 2060. With the plan coming into effect, as a board chairman of the company I'm working for, that is Guizhou Phosphate Chemical Group, I have to be more prepared to face more merciless requirement on pollution control. And at the same time, I'm delighted to find some unexpected opportunities are approaching the company. In five years from now, I'm confident that China will become a better China, more eco-friendly, more digitally developed, less disparity in wealth between rural and urban communities, and more balanced development between different regions, higher level public security, a more robust and a resilient economy, more attractive business environment and more business opportunities to global business partners. Thank you gentlemen so much for joining our show. Thanks. My You've been a wonderful you. host. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.